I don't know what you're talking about. I don't bake cookies. I eat cookies. I eat as many as possible. And it's that time of year when I... What is that noise? Oh, yeah. Well, I get it now. It's the sound effect that indicates it's the season to eat cookies. Welcome to Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano, and it's the it's the holiday season. I was going to say the actual different names of things, but, you know, I'm going to leave somebody out and annoy somebody, even more than I usually annoy somebody. So I'm going to leave it out for now and just say welcome to the holiday season. I hope you're getting ready. I hope you're happy. I hope you've bought all of your gifts that you need to buy. And I hope you're taking time out to enjoy a lovely podcast, perhaps with a lovely little cocktail and, of course, a cookie. And boy, we've got another great one for you here today. Tom Calderon. Now, who is Tom Calderon? Some of you who are who have been around a few years, you don't have to be my age, but you know, they've been around a few years, you know that Tom Calderon was over there at Buff State where he changed the face of local music and WBNY and all those things that went on when he was program director over there, and he was just a kid. And that's when he made his big mark on the local music scene because at that point, He was highlighting all of the local talent on his radio station. And now he's the president and CEO of Buffalo Toronto Public Media, your PBS station. I mean, talk about a rise in power. Talk about, well, honestly, I'm talking too much. And I should let him tell you how he made those great strides in his career. Let's just welcome Tom Calderon to RLTP's Off-Road. Let's go. Let's go. Welcome yeah. to Off Road. Thanks for having me. I really, oh. really psyched to see you here in a beautiful theater and uh, what a great space. Isn't what it a cool? great space. Yeah. Yeah. You've never met Scott. I've not. No, I've not. But a lot of respect for him. And and you know, look. I mean, I think anytime you have that entrepreneurial spirit, particularly in the theater and entertainment business, I have a lot of respect for people like that. Yeah, because, he's um, he's you know, got it. That's for sure. So yes. you know, I want to go through everything. Okay. I, I especially want to talk about, of course. You know, you're taking over at uh, on August second mm-hmm. at the Buffalo Toronto. You know, yeah. I just I must have blinked, and all of a sudden, uh, Western New York public yeah. became Buffalo Toronto. And I know I, I looked it up. I said that because we get a lot of funding from people in Canada. Yes, and, yeah. and a lot of uh, viewership is in Canada. I, I'm sure. Yeah, and they must have just decided. Well, I'm talking. You just you tell me if you know. Sure. That, that it just made sense to link us up. Yeah, I think there had to be an acknowledgement to the Toronto Southern Ontario uh, marketplace because a, a good chunk of our audience comes from there, mm-hmm. and uh, not only on the TV side but also on the uh, radio audio radio. side. So the acknowledgement of the kind of uh, binational product that we put out, and it's interesting too because you would think, okay, you know. Toronto and Buffalo, as you know, have such a really great relationship. You know, you go up to Toronto for things. People from Toronto, Southern Ontario come to Buffalo for things. Right. So it isn't a, like, New York-Philly thing, you know, or uh, or Baltimore-D.C. <laughs> thing. It, it's actually a very symbiotic relationship. Right. And I think the acknowledgement of that area and the audience and having respect for them, I think, was really important. It's almost so. like less a competition and more of a, yeah, a, yeah. more of a partnership. Yeah, and, and, you know, look, we are there to serve you know, the audience with the content that they just can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So 
for for our organization, again, this was named Buffalo Toronto Public Media, you know, under Don, you know, got to the opportunity, you know, when I came along to say, okay, I want to make sure that anything we produce also has other tentacles so that we are actually doing besides Canada Files and other shows, let's start doing even more original productions out of the Toronto area like we do here hmm. in Western New York, like, oh, okay. you know, like the um, documentary we just did on Klein Hands. Yes. So I think that, you know, having the, the binational opportunity, even for WBFO on the news side, is really important. And uh, and because I think people here in Buffalo are very interested in what's going on in Toronto and vice versa. Right, right. I do want to cover all of that. Mm-hmm. We sort of jumped ahead, but I I want to get your timeline right. Sure. Okay. I, I did a lot. I tried to do my my research, and I, I know you went to Buff State. And I yep. graduated in '86. I know all that. Mm-hmm. And then did you go right from there to joining WRCN in in, uh, in I, Long actually, Island? Actually, I stayed up here for two years. You know, my. My uh, love affair with this city, you know, started when I first came here. And, you know, I grew up on Long Island. I was very lucky because the high school had an FM broadcast radio mm-hmm. station. So I got my chops when I was like, you know, whatever you are. By the way, you one thing you'll know about me with calendar time and time frames, I, I don't remember any dates. So it just, you know, whatever, you, however you old, old in, uh, in high school is what I remember. But came to Buff State, fell in love with it. Fell in love with the city. And then I remember after my first year going home, like everybody does for the summer, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to stay up here. So I had a conversation with my parents, said, look, the WBNY just launched and it was, you know, 24-7 FM radio station. And I said, you know, I'm going to stay up there for the summers. And after I graduated, I had the opportunity to work for Jerry Rio and Tom Langmeyer at uh, WGR when it was a full service station. So mm-hmm. it was Joe Galuski, George Hamburger, Frank Benny. Right. So I really learned the discipline of media there because it was not like 97 Rock where, you know, just freeform kind of radio station. <laughs> I learned discipline and uh, in the, on the media side through Jerry and Tom. And then uh, then I went to WRC in Long Island because I figured, okay, I've taken as far as I can go, and now i got to kind of blaze my own path. So I always wanted to be a program director, so I knew that to be a really good program director, I had to be a good marketing person. So I went. my first job in radio, full-time job, was in marketing. I was the marketing director for a radio station out in Long Island. So unlike others, because, I, well, I went to Canisius College. Okay. They have a carrier current yep. station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I was one of the founding fathers mm. of that. W. It was WVOC, Voice of Canisius in those days. Now it's VCC. But I don't believe they ever made the leap. I have not been back there to ask them, but mm. I don't think they ever, I mean, it was always the dream of FM, Yeah, always the dream, uh, but it was carrier current, which which for those people who don't know, it means you can only hear it like inside the dorms. With it the was radio car- plugged in. Right, yeah. it's carried through the electrical system of the building. Yeah. You could hear it in your car if you were parked like underneath the building, maybe. <laughs> it was AM uh, 690 on, at Canisius. But then BNY, they went, was it right after you had gotten there that they yeah. had gone to, to FM to yeah, 100 they, watts or something? Yeah, the it was interesting. This is how long ago it was uh, in a kind of a governmental way. At the time, a company, in this case SUNY, could not own two FM stations in one market. Mm-hmm. No different than any other uh, thing. But because it was an education license and because... WBMY was going to be different than UB's WBFO, Mm. we were able to get the license. But it took 20-something years of petitioning the government. And then, and this is the God's honest truth, one day, again, this is back when there's no email or, or texting, a bunch of mail came in. 
and it was all in a box and it was just like the typical like oh here's a public affairs program whatever and someone opens up a letter and goes oh my god we just got an fm license <laughs> like there was no like phone call to say congratulations and then that was it we could went. have easily ended up in the recycling with everything well of course there wasn't recycling in those no days, no but, no it but... could have done some landfill you know and uh so it it was quite a feat and then that was it then we didn't look back and uh had a sign-on party and all of that. And then, you know, I became program director about six months into the FM frequency, and we changed the format to, you know, what essentially now called, you know, alternative uh, music. Yes. Uh, back in the day, it was called New Wave. So we were playing REM and U2 and, and bands like that, and just because we felt that was the hole in the marketplace. And we brought a lot of shows here. We brought REM here, 10,000 Maniacs, obviously, who were from yeah. here. The Clash, uh, Shriekback, Husker Du, like some really great, great, yes, t- great yes. Thompson twins. So that was a really great and we treated it you know unlike a college radio station we treated it you know we had format clocks and you know air checks and everything we really added a lot of discipline to that to that radio station and uh and i'll tell you that that group that we had you know it was everybody from dave johnson kevin walsh howie green gabe DeMeo. like there were just some killer people at that radio station <laughs> and who have gone on to great things and uh I really enjoyed my time there and uh, always look back at it fondly. But they were all with aspirations of being disc jockeys. Yeah, that, that's, that was it. You were going to be. You wanted to be an on-air personality. That's it. Yeah, you were. But, but disc you <laughs> wanted to be a program director and. Yeah, that's what I, I thought I would do. I thought I'd be a program director at a radio station, and I did that eventually at uh, WHFS in Washington D.C. And and the program director is the guy who's who's making decisions with input i'm sure but making yeah. decisions about what gets on the air everything from overseeing ad sales and uh, you know it's almost like kind of like an assistant gm's job you know mm-hmm. you were dealing with the air staff you were dealing with marketing you were dealing with sales you were dealing with um, engineering so i really when i got to whfs they elevated me to operations manager which meant that i had to kind of take care of everything while the gm was taking care of ad sales and things like that mm-hmm. so I did that for a while, and then I segued to um, uh, Jacobs Media. I got an opportunity to to work for the number one radio consulting firm in, in the United States, and we signed on a bunch of edge stations around the country, including one here in Buffalo, which mm-hmm. I was very happy about, that we did with Bill Sauer and Charlie Banta, and uh, the first program director there, a guy by the name of Lenny Diana. And Lenny was was such a great asset to that radio station and uh, really enjoyed my time there. That, that was fun. I had Shred and Reagan doing mornings there. And uh, we made some noise. We really made some noise. It was great. It was really great. You and know, that's with Jacob, Jacob's Media? Jacob's Media, yeah. So I did everything from Seattle to Tulsa to Buffalo to New York City, K-Rock in New York, um, you know, and consulted those stations. And uh and then randomly one day, I w- I'll tell you, I'll never forget, I was in Indianapolis. We consulted the station there, X103, I think it was called, and uh, I checked my voicemail, and uh, I got a message from a woman named Judy McGrath who ran MTV, MTV Networks. Right. And I never met her, didn't even, it was nev- never on my radar screen. If you talked to anybody you went to college with, they'd be like, no, he never really talked about that. I was like, oh, you know. And then, you know, I called her. I said, hey, what's up? She said, well, we heard some good things about you. You know, would you be interested in coming here? And I said, yeah, let's meet. And then about nine months later, went to MTV. I said, okay, this will be fun for a year or two. And then they'll probably fire me. And, you know, because they churn through people pretty quickly there. And then 18 years later, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ran VH1 there, and uh, which was amazing. And we were 
at VH1, we were number one on Monday nights outside sports for like three something straight years. Which yeah, that is was in the heyday of MTV yeah. VH1. I mean, yeah. MTV 81, I think it started. Yeah, 81. So yep. you're, you're like in, it's 10 years in. It's a huge thing, MTV. Yeah. And yep. they come looking for you also yeah. for programming? Yeah, I was executive vice president of music and talent. So it was everything from TRL to the VMAs wow. to creating music shows. We, uh, yeah, it was a fun job. It was it was great. I had a great team there of just really creative television people. And it was so different for out, me. Out of New York City, I assume. Out right? of New York City, right in Times Square. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, I, rem- uh, I remember Total Request Live. Oh, my God. That was, uh, I mean, it was so funny. You'd be sitting in meetings while the show was on live, and you just hear it just screams from Times Square because we had NSYNC there or Backstreet or Britney oh, yeah. or whoever. Oh, it was amazing. Absolutely and, and, and amazing. And TV Spring Break and, and down at the beaches. Down, oh, was... oh, yeah. No, I, I tell you, I as that was a hard job, but I every time I think about that building and, the, and my time there, I just smile because I just met so many great people uh, who I still keep in touch with. And, uh, and to some extent, I know it's kind of weird to say, but I always... When I walked into MTV, I felt like I was walking into WBNY because it was risk-taking and they encouraged it to be, you know, think, it's outside the box, but think differently. And uh, Well, they invented this format that was, you know, unheard of. I remember, you know, Video Kill the Radio Star, all that stuff. I remember that first time it came on and we're all looking at it going, well, what... What, what is, is this? what is yeah. this? Yeah. So they had a blank slate. They really did. And in terms of just you know, as you said, you opening up there, anything was possible yeah. because nothing had been established. Right. And and the other thing too is that, you know, they also had the vision to say, okay, we can't base a business on other people's content, and <laughs> so we can still play music video stuff, but let's start adding some shows. And again, I wasn't there at the time, but it's remote control and real world and all that yes. stuff. And then when I was there, it was you know the Osbournes and Jackass and uh, Newlyweds with Jessica and Nick and those shows <laughs> that had a, and Diary and, and 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 again Total Request Live that had a music element to it, but had great storytelling, and and that's really where I learned the chops about how to do storytelling. And I did a lot of comedy for them. We did Snoop Televizzle uh, mm-hmm. and another show called Wonder Shows and, uh, for MTV2. So uh, it was fun to do some comedy there for, for MTV. And then, then doing VH1, it was pretty much celeb reality. So it was... Yeah full-on reality shows you know we obviously had storytellers and and all those shows um you know a lot of um we had uh, divas and hip-hop honors and things like that but our, our our bread and butter really was reality uh shows and uh they did extremely well for us yeah really well. and and you were a, a I was pres- president of, of vh1 of vh1 um so in charge of green lighting with my head of development a woman mm-hmm. by the name of susan levinson who i hired from fox and she was, and still is, one of the best television executives. Uh, she just got commercial really, really well and cool. really knew how to tell stories. So uh, really loved working with her and, uh, and that team. Team was great. Well, I want to go all the way back now because sure. I really, you're not a Buffalo guy. No. You're from downstate. Long Island, as they Long, used to Island say. Long Island. Long Island, yeah, right? Long Island. Uh, but you came here. But I'm going to talk a little bit about about mm. your your early life. Mm-hmm. Were you always this involved in music? Were you were you did, did, yeah. <laughs> did something happen to you? They dropped I, you on your head? Which, no, I well probably no. Were my, you a musician? No, no, no. Oh God, no. I, I I tried to play saxophone, but because I was so small, I I couldn't lift it, so I couldn't do that. So they, <laughs> I I defaulted to clarinet. Here's uh, a ukulele. Yeah, here's a ukulele. Right. <laughs> no, my parents or Santa Claus uh, got me a uh, a tape recorder when I was like five and. And that's that was, always that was knows. it. That was it. That was it. That was it. When you I was discovered, like, uh, yeah. no plan B. No plan B. If this didn't work out, 
No plan B. But but what what did the what the tape recorder represent to you? A way to communicate and interview people, and I I would be that obnoxious kid at birthday parties interviewing everyone at the bro. This is really <laughs> Uncle horrible. Joe talking to yeah, the microphone. Really Tell us a little about something. <laughs> oh jeez, yeah, it was awful. Yeah, that was me. Uh, oh, with here the microphone. comes Tom again. Yeah, just, here just, comes the just microphone. Say something in the microphone, just, and then he'll, he'll make, go make away. Go away. Go right? away. Uh, yeah, the, the guest that wouldn't leave. And then I remember uh, when we we had a move, and I remember. My parents said to me, you know, this the school district we're moving to has an FM radio station. And that's how I met Gabe DeMeo, who uh, who's, who lives here at the high school radio station, which mm-hmm. which had more wattage than WBNY. And my, my relatives in Connecticut used to listen to me on there. And, uh, and that was it. I just, I again, no plan B. I don't know if that's, that's good to say, but no plan B. <laughs> no plan B. So thank God it worked out. Otherwise, uh, you'd be interviewing somebody that would have nothing to talk about. So, so were, you do, were you doing stuff in high school? That, that were connected to the to the airwaves? Yeah, so I was a DJ on the FM station. Um, I think I was community affairs director. I don't know what that meant, but I was that. But at uh, that time, you, were, you wanted to be on air. Yeah, I just figured, oh, I'll do this. And then I realized I wasn't really good at it. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. And then, um, yeah, then I was program director at WBNY after, after about a year being in, in school. And, uh, and the thing that about Buff State, you know, I went to, you know, I applied to Syracuse and Marist and some of these other schools. Yeah, where did Buff State, how did that fit into your plans? Well, it, very simply, um, they allowed freshmen to be on the radio station, where in Syracuse you had to be a junior. And I'm like, well, what's the point of going to college if I can't Get out practice? of the air until, Yeah, what's oh, yeah, the yeah. point? Plus, I also knew that Buffalo was a larger market than Marist or Syracuse. Where else did I apply? I think that was it where I applied. Uh, I might, Binghamton I applied to as well. And... Um, because they had a good FM station. And uh, I figured, oh, I can get an internship here, which I did. I interned at WGR. So I had the opportunity to um, work for um, some good companies at the time. WGR was owned by Taft Broadcasting. So I yep. at least had a chance to, you know, again, at the age of, you know, 18, 19, you know, learn from a pretty reputable, you know, broadcasting group. So I just became a sponge and just listened and asked questions and until still to this day, not assume that I know everything. And uh, I always like surrounding myself with not just with smart people, but surrounding myself with people that I can ask questions for and brainstorm and really feel that there's a opportunity for just not just collaboration, but eventually collaboration that leads to a a road that gets you to the to the end, end of the uh, hopefully the end of the, the the goal line to get to that to whatever that success measurement is. Yeah, being surrounded with smart people, mm-hmm. people you can bounce ideas off of, people you yeah. can collaborate with. Really, that's that's what it's all about. I mean, it, yeah. it's, in in theater, same thing. People Absolutely. think that you know the actors. No, it's a collaboration. collaboration. Everybody is everybody is contributing into stuff. So Buff yeah. State was on. What program were we talking about? The JBS. Yeah, it was journalism, broadcasting, and speech. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But the weird thing was is that you had to be a discipline on whatever lane it was. So I took a couple of requisite TV courses, but I was strictly radio. There were TV people and there was journalism, you know, the newspaper people. And you really didn't cross-pollinate, which, you know, back then that's kind of how it went. Now you have to be a triple threat. You know, have to know how to write. You know have to do television. You know how to do audio. So... But back then it was like, you're a radio person, you're a TV person. So I was the radio guy, you know. Right, right. So TV was never really, you know, in my head because... I always felt with television, it was too slow, you know, by the time you produce something and get it on, you know, and that, that was kind of a wake up call when I got to MTV is like, oh, okay. So we got a music video. Oh, right. Now we have to go through standards and practices. Now we have to edit. Now we've got, you know, 
do all that. So sometimes we'd see a great music video and it couldn't really hit the air for two weeks because I had to go back and make edits and, you know, stuff. So, but then I got to really fall in love with television because the pop culture impact you can make on television is just, you know, reverberates forever. And that's why, you know, coming to Buffalo Toronto Public Media to work for, you know, NED PBS, just the, the opportunity to tell these stories both in, you know, both in Buffalo and Toronto and then also, you know, ride the, the halo of PBS as a brand is just, just terrific. Yeah. All right. So continuing along. So now yeah. you're at Buff State and I know you, you've referred to Buffalo as your adopted hometown. Yeah, and, I, yeah. and I know you started spending your summers here. Yeah. And what did you find different here that you didn't find in Long Island? Or what did you find appealing here that, that drew you to the city? Well, I think... It's a tough one. Yeah, no, I, I, it, you know what? It's going to sound so cliche, and of course he said this. It really is about the people, because what ended up happening was I I had many compartments of friends. So I had Buffalo friends that mm-hmm. lived here. I had all my downstate friends that I eventually got to know through the radio station. And then I worked at Gables on Hurdle Avenue as a DJ on the weekends, so I got a chance to meet that side. So I had all these different compartments, and... Um, the great thing was was that I got to also be part of a really great creative community. So people like the late uh, Tim Swatala and Bob Dye and people like that, I got a chance to kind of not only hang with them but collaborate with them creatively. And we did some really good, cool stuff at, at BNY. And then, you know, just absorbing the city and its culture. And what 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 I really found was here was that, you know, you had places like hall walls and all these kind of, yeah. I, I hate to say underground, but just kind of these, you know, alternative uh, platforms. Niche. Yeah, 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 yeah which good. I always, I seem to gravitate towards, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Uh, more than the massive Now, it, stuff. at Gables, is that where, because I know, and I do want to talk a little bit about BNY and when yeah. the, the local music scene. Yeah. Did you meet a lot of musicians? Yeah, they used to do, they used to do bands there, I think on like Thursdays or Saturday, it must have been Thursday nights or Tuesday nights. So I met David Kane. And again, it was just this, you know, this, he was in a band called Nullstadt and uh, the Great Train Robbery mm-hmm. and, and all. And again, you know, Natalie, you know, Merchant from yes. The Maniac. So I, I just really got really absorbed into the counter. I guess the best way to put it is counterculture of Buffalo. Uh, you know, I was still a Bills fan and all that, but I really enjoy the counterculture of the city, which it doesn't get a lot of credit for. You know, you had people like Tony Bellani and, you know, all these really thought really progressive thinkers in this city that uh, I really just kind of gravitated towards pretty quickly. So that's what I loved about it because I could have my my sports friends and I could also have my counterculture friends. And, and I and I still, to this day, always kind of seek them out because I always find a, a really burst of creative energy from, from that sector of, of the population. There really was not much counterculture on Long Island unless you owned a strip mall is probably the best way to put it. But, uh, but I, you know, look, I mean, you know, the Splat Cats and, you know, all, all these people were just, just really cool to hang with and really were in it for the art and really in it for the opportunity to, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily make it big, but at least make an impact. And I remember, you know, I talked to some bands like Green Jello and guys like that, and they'd go down and play CBGBs and things like that, but they always came back here because they always just enjoyed the, the vibe of the city. Yeah, because at WBNY, you made local music a strong focus of the station. Yeah. Yeah, and so the, where did that come from? Just because you became some, such an admirer of the music here? Yeah. Or the th- culture. Yeah, the culture, yeah. So what ended up happening was, 
we decided let's not just do a local show because that that's almost disrespectful to the art form here. Mm. The The rule was, which again, you know, back in the day when you're formatting, you had to play two local bands an hour because we felt that the local bands like Mark Freelin and, and, uh, and his Electro brother Man. Jimbo, yeah, and his yeah. brother Jimbo, they should be right next to REM and be right next to U2 because they were just as good as far as we were concerned. I got you, as opposed to giving them their own hour on yeah. Sunday night. Yeah, Sunday night at 11 when nobody's listening, right. So uh, we actually, and that's what we also did too at BNY. We, we counter-programmed to the market. So on uh, Sundays, WBLK was all gospel and talk. Mm-hmm. So on Sundays, we did hip, at the time, I don't know what we would have called it, because hip-hop, yeah, I guess it was called hip-hop, yeah. I mean, right, yeah. Uh, so we did hip-hop on, on Sundays, just because, you know, there was no place to go if you loved hip-hop, because the premier hip-hop station was really doing talk and gospel. Gospel, sure. So, you know, and then we did a thing called All Talk Monday, where we did, you know, kind of, again, counter-balancing to Monday Night Football and things like that, that we just did topics that were important to the demographic of a college student and certainly Elmwood Village and Kenmore and places like that. So there were everything from political shows to a show called On Being Gay, which, you know, never, you know, back in 82, people were like, wait, what? You know, Uh, but we felt it was important to kind of break down those barriers. So we really, you know, looked at it from the perspective, where are the holes? And then during the rest of the week, it was quote unquote regular format. But yeah, getting back to local music, we did not want to sequester it just to a one hour show. And we ended up uh, putting it into quote unquote regular rotation. And uh, I think the bands appreciated, you know, look, you know, the Google Goo Dolls, are, you know, got their start on BIY. Sure. You know? And uh, and I don't think they would have been as popular if they were just on Saturday nights at 10. So as a program director, you made that part of the, of the policy. Mm-hmm. You got to play at least two uh, yep. per hour. Yeah, and it didn't matter where it came from. You know, there were some people that played more poppier, uh, you know, local bands, and some played edgier stuff. Uh, it really depended on, on on the flow of your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we really tried to, as much as we had a format, we wanted to make sure that the that the, the presenters had a little bit of freedom on, on what they played. And, you know, if you listen to a guy named Calzone, uh, he would probably play a little more kind of... Um, kind of like, I guess the best way to put it, kind of the glam rock side of, of alternative. And then Kevin Walsh would play a little more clash and things like that, you know, so. So did you have musicians banging down the door saying, here's our stuff, here's new oh, stuff? Oh yeah, all the time. Because where did the programming come from? Where did all cassettes, the material come cassettes, from? Yeah, cassettes, yeah, solicit, yeah, cassettes. We just solicit and they would, you know, go in and, you know, record a certain, you know, studio here in the city and then give us a really great, you know, the best version they possibly can of what they were doing. And uh, and then there were some people um, on staff, including Tina Peel, who started her own band, Intergalactic Burnt Toast. So we actually had some <laughs> local bands within the own, their own uh their own, uh, our own air staff too. So, which is kind of cool. So, and and you were really breaking ground here because, th- if I recall, there were no other stations in town playing local music. You, you no, had to wait no. for the, the Goo Goo Dolls had to wait a long yeah, time, a long time yeah. before somebody would, you know, put them on. Yeah, uh, I, I think one our of the big, rock stations. I think our, you know, BFO at that time You're was filling a need. Uh, yeah, it was more blues and jazz. I don't even think they were an NPR. They might have been NPR, maybe, maybe just news or something. Mm-hmm. CFNY in Toronto was like our quote unquote biggest competition at that point. You know, there were no, obviously no streaming services or anything like that. So it was really us and CFNY. And we would do, you know, specialty shows and things like that. We had a show called Ha Ha, I'm on the radio where you send in a postcard and you got a chance to program BNY for an hour. 
that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just and again the people that were there that created WBNY. Just such such a special time, such a special. And you time. started sponsoring concerts and and yeah. and there was also a video element of this. Thirty three West. Thirty three West. I did. I hosted like, that with like almost a reaction to the MTV. Show yeah, that was happening yeah. Five years earlier. Yeah, it was me and a guy named Jeff Hastings, and uh, we hosted a music video show that Tommy Calandra produced. Uh, God rest his soul, and uh, sure. uh, and we did a and we just played local. It was a half hour show on uh, public access, and it was um, local bands, music videos. So you had bands recording videos, whether it was in a club or uh, a band called the Femmes. They did a their video on the break wall. I remember, yeah, some really cool stuff. And uh, <laughs> uh, so we yeah we hosted that once a week and. Yeah, it was fun. It was oh, fun. It was awesome. good working with you. It does yeah. sound like a lot of fun. Mm. So now, again, with the timeline here, mm. so you go from BNY, and, and then you, you spend some time back on Long Island, and, yeah. and, and then you get you get tapped to do this consulting gig yeah, yeah. With, with Jacobs. Yeah. And let me just ask you very quickly, when you're brought in as a consultant right. for Jacobs or for MTV after that, and then VH1 and so on yeah. as part of the whole family, what was your responsibility as a consultant would they run things by you or would they say does this fit with our with our overall picture does this yeah or, or did you come in were you an idea guy that said why not try something else i'm, I'm just all curious of all of it what the consultant label yeah. means it's all of it i mean all of those it's ideas all of in it. consulting yeah it's all of it and i kind of dove in head first so i guess the best way to put it is a consultant is only as good as the amount of time you use them and there were some stations I consulted, like a, the guy in Dallas who really looked at me for stunt ideas and working with the morning show. There were some other program directors that really wanted everything from, you know, music flow to, you know, finding air talent, marketing. They wanted to pick your brain on all of that. Yeah, which was great. And the reason why I segued from you know, day-to-day radio to consulting was that I kind of liked the concept of hanging up the phone you know, on Friday, quote unquote, at five o'clock and not mm-hmm. worrying about the transmitter going down and things like that. Interesting. Plus, yeah. I like the fact of, again, surrounding myself with really smart people and people I can learn from. And Fred and Paul were really just top notch humans and just really smart guys. So I did that for about four years and the travel was tough. The travel was mm-hmm. tough. And uh, I, you know, I got to a place where I'm like, okay, eventually I definitely want to like not travel as much as I did. And, uh, and, and, and again, I thought I was going to go back to radio and then MTV called. So I, I was really just kind of figuring out what my next radio stop was going to be. But I enjoyed the consulting work because I also was privy to a lot of research and they were also a research company. So we would do perceptual studies, we would do music tests and things like that. So really learning all that and learning about audience flow and also learning about a national footprint because as much as they say every market's different, there is a, a kind of a commonality to people when they listen to, in this case, I was consulting alternative uh, music stations. There was a commonality to not just the bands you play, but the presentation style and things like that. So, so learning a lot about consistency and discipline that I learned back in the WGR days with <laughs> Langmire, you know, it all kind of come, came full circle. So now you, you spend all this time at MTV, and I really, I, believe me, I really want to get to Buffalo, Toronto, mm-hmm. public media, but I'm just so fascinated by mm-hmm. this. Just looking back on that whole MTV, uh, VH1, your time there, Yeah, I, I know you have fond memories, but do you have memories of something that where you'd say, boy, I'm, I'm most proud of 
of this achievement or of doing this or is there something that you that really sticks in your mind as an achievement that you could or an accomplishment that you really are most proud of? I think I can't answer that because of one reason. The one thing that organization did was that they did you did not rest on one idea. <laughs> you had to reinvent and evolve all the time. We used to have this thing called evolve or die. So in a way, we would have a win and then it'd be like, okay, well, what's next? <laughs> so it truly taught you that you had to keep pushing. I would say though, what I would say was my proudest moment was probably presenting and showing off all the work that my team had done for like offsites and upfronts and things like that. I always loved showing off what the teams produced and presented. I'm also proud that we launched one of the first television apps with VH1. I, I love that a lot. You know, um, you, you could, like boy, mo mobile, so mobile friendly sort of yeah. programming that, that that you pioneered. I mean, you personally, but at, at VH1, yeah, getting into podcasts and yeah. You know, I remember when podcasts first came out, and I said, when I remembered, <laughs> oh boy, Apple saying, uh, you know, and we've got this thing called, you mm -hmm. know, you know, the iPod, and people are going to do podcasts. And I thought, mm. nobody's going to do that. And and now it, it, there's a, a million of them, like including we're doing. this one. Exactly. Like we're doing, right? So somehow you fit that into the whole VH1 thing and yeah. pioneered into these apps. You know, everything is old as new again. You know, what you and I are doing right now is really. A, uh, a radio show without the pressure of people pressing the dial, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You, the great thing about podcasting is that you are making a social contract with your listener saying you want to go narrow and deep with this particular topic. I have respect for you as a consumer, as a user, to be part of this environment. Mm -hmm. So it's not... It may be transactional, but it also isn't disposable, which is why I love podcasting. So... In a way, you know, we took a lot of the audio stuff that we were doing at VH1, you know, in particular, Best Week Ever and things like that, mm -hmm. and creating that. But certainly when it went to Spotify is when we, I really got into the podcasting space and we started Spotify Studios. But on the VH1 side, you know, we were starting to really get into these short form content pieces and that never hit television, just were just short form video. And we started seeing the traction and the the engagement levels go way high. And so it got a lot of learning there, which really helped me jump over to Spotify right after VH1. Did you also pioneer in some way monetizing these apps? For, because yeah. the, fact, the fact that people click onto them doesn't necessarily mean anything except exposure. Yeah. Uh, and and so was there also the this? Sadly, no. I, I don't think, you know, at VH1 specifically, the advertising agencies still had not pivoted, I know that's an overused word, to advertising online just yet. Yeah. It was still the kind of a foreign uh, you know, land for a lot of them. But, well, we were all wondering, how yeah, do you make how money, do you make money on it? Exactly. So, yeah. so a lot of it was just clean video with no pre-rolls or anything like that. Started getting it a little bit into the pre-rolls near the end of my tenure at VH1, but nothing that was like, you know, uh, breaking the bank, so to speak, you mm -hmm. know, what uh, just wasn't there. And frankly, even at Spotify, you know, we had some podcasting advertisers, we had some video sponsors, and we had a really great uh, sales department at uh, Spotify. But it still was still in the early stages of this. 
you did find some agencies and some sponsors and some brands that really wanted to learn from us. Um, going back to VH1 real quick. So what we would do is when we were doing what we call pod busters, which was like short form interstitials in between commercial breaks, we brought the advertising agencies into the focus group so they can learn along with us, hmm. which nobody would have done because they were like, well, no, they shouldn't learn about our audience. But I was like, well, if we take them along for the journey, we might be able to learn from them and vice versa. And then that's how those relationships will always actually become a little more coherent. And I think they appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I really did. And, um, well, we were inventing the wheel here. Inventing everything, and no one had the answer. By the way, no one still has the answer. If they, if they say they do, they're lying. So, <laughs> it's like, that's, a, that's not true. But I think that breaking down silos in any organization is one thing, but breaking down silos to your partners outside, however the revenue comes, in this case where I am now, through membership donations, those sustainers, those kind of things, or just pure advertising when I was in the commercial world, you have to break down those walls because... In those tie-breaking moments, you want that advertiser or that member or that underwriter to say, you know what, I learned a lot from them and I'm going to stick with them. And I think that's really important. Brilliant segue into where we're going next, which Ish. is which is Buffalo Toronto mm. Public Media. Now, how did this happen? Did they seek you out, or did you put no. your name out there and it did was you say, "Hey, uh, hey, I'm I'm looking to come back to Buffalo"? And what what have you got? Yeah, it was the weirdest story. So I did not know that Don had retired because it was yes. in the middle of COVID. So everything, you know, nobody, everybody was trying to stay alive, basically, let alone. So a friend of mine forwarded me an article in the Buffalo News. I don't know if you heard, but Don's retiring. It's like, oh, wow. And did you know him personally, Don Boswell? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did a guitar fest with him a couple of times, ran into him at events, always thought the world of him. And uh, so I emailed him and I said, hey, uh, love to have lunch with you soon. Didn't tell him why. So we're having lunch, we're just catching up and everything. And of course I said to him, I'm very jealous you're able to retire. <laughs> and uh, he said, so what are you doing? I said, well, that's why I'm kind of why I'm here. I wanted to ask your blessing if, if I could apply for this job. I didn't, just didn't want to put a resume in. So he said, oh, he said, well, they've been kind of going through the search process for a while now. I said, I just literally found out about it. So the, the search committee and everybody was so kind to let me uh, apply and then, um, going through meeting the board and, and all of that. Interviews, the usual. The usual stuff, mm -hmm. right? And then one day I got a phone call from the um, head recruiter uh, out of D.C. because Don, to his credit, did not want to be involved because he was like, you know what, I need to take a step back and let the process play itself out. So I thought that was actually a smart move on his part and uh, and got the job. And uh, it sounds simpler than it was, but uh, but a lot of interviews, a lot of presentations, a lot of very thoughtful conversations with a lot of the board members who all come from many different sectors of this, of this community, including Canada. But I felt that despite the fact I came from commercial then going to public, public. I still felt that, you know, at the end of the day, commercial or, or public, you still have to be an entertaining platform. Mm. Sesame Street is entertaining. Yes. Ken Burns is entertaining. Mm -hmm. That's sometimes an ugly word sometimes, but it's true. So, and I think all of my digital experience and, and the scrapes and bruises and, and everything <laughs> else that, I, that I've, I've gone through. But I will tell you, you know, through the interview process, you know, I'd ask, hey, how's the staff? And great staff, great staff. I'm like, okay, great, as advertised. I mean, walked in that building and not only really welcomed and warmly received, but what a bunch of flipping smart people in that <laughs> building, right? And really 
really tethered to the mission, tethered to the audience, leaning into how to make this thing bigger is not a foreign concept to them. And all I'm doing is taking what Don built and just making it more famous. You know? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you should say that because I, as I said, I'm considerably older, but I remember when, when Channel 17. I know. I, by the, the way, old... I still call it 17. Sometimes I'll be in the, in the office going, well, you know, Channel 17. I'm like, because oh, I'm so used to, because at BNY, we would help with the, with the, the auction or whatever. I'm like, oh, we're going to Channel 17. Is, right. It was uh, Channel 17. Yeah, exactly. WNED TV. Yeah. TV, yeah. Right. And yeah. we had to, have the, the, had to have the little transformer the, oh, yeah. the, to get the UHF stations. Mm-hmm. I remember all that. And I... And I, I was doing some research about you know, at the very beginning because there was a Channel 7 and then there was a 17 and then they were owned by the same. No, right. they weren't. But then, but yeah. anyway, there was a whole lot. And it was the place where you went to see Sesame Street in black and white. Yep. Uh, the old Doctor Who. Yep. Uh, you know, and it was, it's changed so much. Yeah. Well, in terms of actually being a producing mm-hmm. house now as mm-hmm. well with these incredible documentaries. And yeah. there's... <laughs> When there's when I'm sitting home just flipping through the channels, I always look mm. to see what's on PBS because just the other day I'm watching. Why am I watching Ken Burns? I've already seen this on the national parks. Yeah, <laughs> but it was on, so I put it on again. It's just loaded with stuff, and I and I don't mean to be blowing smoke about it, but the change in this local resource from this little tiny black and white UHF channel mm-hmm. to this cable, not even cables, cable, satellite, everything, everything yeah. and, and multinational is amazing. And I guess, Mike, if there's a question anywhere in this mm. is, where do you see it going? Or where th- would you like to see it going? You know, okay, so let's break it into different compartments. So first off, doing more short form storytelling on all the platforms, classical, WBFO, and certainly right. I should NBA. I should differentiate yeah. because there's yep. the TV and then there's the radio. Yeah. So, and I think that you know, look at it this way: when you take the essence of the community on either side of the border, every platform in that building should represent that idea. So, for example, when Ken Burns, Muhammad Ali comes on mm-hmm. NED PBS, WBFO is also now going to be part of that story. And they're going to tell a deeper story about a local boxing organization Mm -hmm. here, right? Mm -hmm. Classical may say, you know what? We found some inspiring kind of like, you know, Muhammad Ali type classical music to match that, right? So when you think about the organization, you have to think about being everywhere the audience is. So when we get to a place where, for example, we have Passport, which is our Netflix, right? those kind of opportunities for the cord cutters that may not have cable anymore, that we're still in their world. And that is going to be the most important thing. So that this way, when you want to see the Ken Burns Parks series again, because any of the productions we do both locally or the national stuff that we air has layers of content that sometimes you may miss something on the first airing. I remember watching the Kleinhans documentary, which is on now, and I was like, oh, I watch it three times and I learn something each time each and time, the third time, sure. right? So, so, much. so the layers of, of storytelling and, and, and just kind of the depth that we go into, sometimes you, you also have to be very disciplined to watch a lot of this content. But the key to this, which really sounds antithetical to, to the PBS and NPR as, as a brand, is they're one of the last of the frontiers of risk-taking storytelling folks. On the streaming side, Netflix, Hulu, et cetera, are certainly in that world. Or certainly HBO is still. But on the commercial side of things, there's not many risk takers anymore. 
and many of the cable channels sadly have be just become repurposed you know they're running friends and fresh mm. prints and repeats <laughs> and stuff at least i feel that the drama specifically have really become kind of the essence of PBS and, and NED. And then if we flavor it with short form content around some of the storytelling that we're doing, all of a sudden now you've got like a really good colorful palette of different points of view, different entrees to the brand. And I think that what we just have to do is make sure we keep feeding this ecosystem on all the platforms so that you're not feeling excluded if you're just a classical music fan. You might want to listen to the classical station on a regular basis, but also you'll be able to learn from those classical presenters. Hmm. You'll learn from the WBFO presenters, whether it's about the election or whether it's about the border opening up, whatever it is. And then on the television side, making sure that we're streaming, making sure that you can watch our snackable content anywhere and get it to a place where it's like, okay, I don't necessarily have to sit on my couch to enjoy this content. It's anywhere I want to be, wow. which I think is important. So. You know, and again, here's how dumb I am, because I am a member and I get the passport email mm. every now and then. Mm -hmm. Never even occurred to me. And, and I don't know exactly when it started that I started using it so much. The other day I was watching, there was some email that came in and it said, uh, uh, the universe, because Nova something or yep. other. And I said, oh, oh yeah, I, I fell asleep watching that the other night. <laughs> and so I found it on, on my computer. Mm -hmm. Then at, at the bottom, there were all these other little links for a different part of the universe uh, Nova series. So then I clicked on that and it yep. never, I never even put two and two together that, oh, this is, this is our Netflix. This, right. This, this is our version of that. And, yep. and it all started. A buddy of mine recommended, are you watching All Creatures Great and Small? Oh, now, great I series. Thought, no, I'm not. And he said, oh, my wife and I love it. So then I looked, I searched for it. Oh, well, there it was. There it was. And yeah. I watched the whole series. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Just loved it. No, and that's, that's what we want. What we want is for you to stay in our ecosystem. And how then, come I didn't think of, how come I didn't know that this is like. That's why I'm here to help you. I'm here to help guide you through well, you've got the multi-platform. <laughs> you, you've got a lot this of work a seven hour podcast. <laughs> and then hopefully what's going to happen is as we grow, when you're watching, say, the park system, mm -hmm. then it's going to say, you know, by the way, you're interested in the park system. We have an environmental desk at WBFO. There's some really great stories about the uh, Olmsted Park system that I think you'd probably be interested mm -hmm. in. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. now you're transferring over to WBFO. And then it's like, hey, you know what? Right now, classical, NED classical, is in the middle of the top 100. You might have learned that maybe on Passport, maybe not by driving in your car or what have you. So for us is to make sure we keep reminding people, and not in an aggressive way, but almost like in a very authentic way, to stay in our ecosystem because we have a lot of programming to offer at that point. And again, this is probably my own ignorance, but I'm th I've never put the two and two together. And uh, as I said, I get the emails and it says, here's mm. your passport picks for the week or whatever. And I just discovered this. Oh, if you look down at the bottom here, there are these other little screenshots of, of yeah. other things yeah. that you might be interested in. And uh, passport is such a gift. And and look, our members like you are the ones that, you know, keep that content alive. And, you know, we do, you know, behind the scenes, we do so much work with our donors, so much work with members and making sure that are not only our members happy, but also like you, you're getting those emails to mm -hmm. make sure that you're reminded that this stuff is available to you. Because mm -hmm. sometimes like anything else, you, you know, sometimes you sign up for something, you don't actually <laughs> don't realize all the stuff that you can be getting. And uh, I think we have a lot to offer to be a member. 
I found a quote from you that said, our job is to listen to our audience mm -hmm. and learn from them ex and expand on their likes. Yes. Now, you've only been on the job for three and a half months, roughly. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> what have you learned about your audience and how do you expand our likes? I think... Let's see. That's such a great question. Right, here's what I would say to to that. Well, let's say, break it apart. Yeah. What, what what have you learned about your audience first? What I've learned is that they consume this content deep and frequently. Mm -hmm. This is one of their you know to use an old radio term P one. They are the prime. We are the primary source for entertainment. The passion level for a WBFO user is just as passionate as a classical as it is PBS NED. Hmm. So what I mean by that is that. If you're a BFO P1, you are immersed in that world like nobody else. What I'm trying to do is also get that same energy from that person over to PBS NED or even classical, even for a relief valve. What I've learned from the audience, not just donors, but just audiences in general, is that they come to PBS or NPR through many different ways. I grew up a PBS kid. What I got in, into PBS for was the comedy. My dad said, okay, look. You're 13. This is a little edgy for you, but I think you'll appreciate was this. Was it Faulty Towers? It was actually Python. It was, <laughs> Python, yeah. And then okay. eventually I got onto Faulty Towers for sure. <laughs> and, you know, my dad has a wicked sense of humor, but uh, that's how I got into PBS, right? And I hope someday PBS does get back to, to comedy again. I, I, I do miss that, that element of it. But when I talk to different people, it is so many different compartments on why they come to us, which is interesting because it might be, wait, wait, don't tell me on BFO. It might be the racial equity desk on BFO. Classical might be, I just love classical during the day because it just calms me down. Mm -hmm. I've heard more people say I've gotten through COVID because of NED classical. Wow. And then on, on the PBS side, what I think I'm, I'm getting from a lot of our audience members that I've met so far, and I still have more to meet, are the local productions the Buffalo Opera that we did, that we're also gonna air another one soon enough. All the stuff we do with the BPO, the, again, the Kleinhans documentary, the documentary in the first ward, all of that, all of a sudden becomes another way of saying, no one else is doing those kind of stories in, in this marketplace. The other thing too is, I think before I even got here and it, it continues, this organization, whether it's audio or video, have done such a great job in connecting the community even if it's an underwriting announcement, because a lot of times you'll hear when you have an underwriting announcement for here on WBFO, people will say, oh, I knew, heard about that play that mm -hmm. Rhodes doing that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So we also kind of, by default, become almost like kind of that community calendar to this world so that this way people feel that like they're connected, that it isn't just a voice track from Cincinnati, like it's actually, you know, live, yes, live yes, humans here. Yes. You know? and again, did we cover, how do you hope to expand people's likes? Yeah, I think expanding their likes are going to be about experimentation and figuring out through research and figuring out through, frankly, analytics, that sounds really boring, about the stuff that people like and then recommend them other things. So for example, if you're a fan of All Creatures Great and Small or you watch the Nova series, mm -hmm. you also may not know that there's a huge library of Nova stuff, Nova content on, uh, on Passport. Or there might be something that you may have never saw before that we're doing 
on NED PBS and want to make sure you're aware of. Okay. Because we do are we're respectful to people's consumption time, and we also know that we're not the only place out there. People do go to Netflix and Hulu and such. So we want to make sure that we're still a first point of consideration. That's how we get to the likes. Because then you could sit there and say, I use all of the services through Buffalo Toronto Public Media for this. I use BFO for this, NED Classical for this, and NED PBS for this. Then all of a sudden you've created your own little ecosystem within our ecosystem to say what we like, what you like, and what, what you want to get entertained by. I don't want to be in a place where you say to me one day, oh, I don't know what you guys are doing. That should never be, that's a bad answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I want you to say like, all right, stop. You're giving me too much stuff. <laughs> but but it, it's really important now to start looking at our audience and making sure that we're really connecting with them through the snackable content of things that we think you're going to like. Mm -hmm. and, and potentially, look, the advantage that you have with a PBS NPR fan is that you're predisposed to the audience to say that they're going to be a little more adventurous and a little more experimental in the content that they, they consume right so you might be a ken burns fan but i might be able to convince you too to check out austin city limits because there's really cool bands on there on friday nights mm -hmm. and those two could never coexist in in the, in the world 10 years ago but now it possibly can because i know more about you as a viewer i know more about you as a listener and i think i know how it had to get to you through other pieces of content and our local pbs mm -hmm. <laughs> you know our buffalo toronto public broadcasting is yeah. all these we talked about the the, the Kleinhands uh, documentary mm -hmm. and the old First Ward and things of that nature. Yep. A lot of these end up being national yep. uh, of national interest. My question was going to be about the Toronto audience or yep. the Canadian audience. Do they have the same interests? But a lot of these documentary things have have been broadcast on national PBS outlets, correct? That is correct. And uh, and I think once the border opens officially, yeah. you know, uh, it's going to be so much better for us because we need to get up to Toronto. There's a ton of stories out there. There's a, there's a documentary that I just saw a rough cut on talking about a, a suburb of Toronto that was kind of like the San Francisco kind of hippie movement talking about counterculture that I had no idea about. And I'm like, this is going to do so well, not just in Toronto, but also here. Mm -hmm. And potentially this could be a national footprint as well. So Something that they've produced up there. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not and that we have gone there. To no, they produced it and said, look, we think this is good for you. And we're like, okay, let's do it. So I think when you look at the totality of what we're producing, we want, I always use this kind of silly example. What I loved about coming here and watching the content that was already produced before I joined was that if accidentally someone miscoded something and one of our local documentaries accidentally got onto Netflix, it would look perfectly fine there. Nobody would go, what is this? Because it's so well done, the productions yes. in this organization. They're terrific, absolutely. The eyes and the thought is so surgical about how they tell these stories. That's what made me really excited about coming here is like, wow. Just keep building on it. Just keep building on it and, and get this staff, get this crew, get these ideas, get these thought starters, just more steroids to make it even better. Mm -hmm. you know? So again, I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you've also been quoted as saying that Buffalo helped define you. Mm. How do you define you? Uh, <laughs> how do I define uh, Let's see. Well, I, I love leading organizations. I really do. But I also think that I, I love collaboration. I love learning from people. You know, there are, 
some leaders, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, that will come into any organization and just like blow it up, bring in their own people right. that kind of look and sound like them and agree with them and everything. They make it over in their image. Yeah, and it's like, that's ah, not what I'm in it for, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also using the chair I sit in for good. And I would say that even in MTV and VH1, you know, I would, not that I'm perfect or that I'm awesome, but like taking the time to know everyone in the organization mm-hmm. and no matter what their business card says, it doesn't matter because I always feel that you should define the business card, the business card should not define you. And I may not be a traditional CEO or a traditional president, because I don't think I was one at VH1 or MTV or any of the other jobs I had. I put my own fingerprint on it about my personality and, and, and who I am as a human. I think that what I love is when people gravitate to an idea or even push back on me to say, hey, you know what, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but maybe try it this way. And I'm open to anything. You have to fail to appreciate the success. Mm. And if you live in fear of failure, then those great ideas will never come. They will never come. And I think what I've been, been incredibly blessed with is an organization here that just wants to win. And not in a win way, like, let's get the best ratings, but win to serve the community and win on that mission. You know, this is a mission-based organization. And this dirty little secret is MTV was a mission-based and so was VH1, and that is to lead pop culture. In this case, the mission's a little bit different. It's to educate and entertain, but we have to remember we're still a media company, so we have to entertain. And everybody there understands that. And even before I got there, has put together an amazing amount of content that they should be proud of, and we're just gonna keep building on it. Well, as your final question, I'm going to ask you something mm. that, that I ask people, I call it my off-road question, mm. but I, I, I'm afraid you have no answer because you told me you had no plan B, but oh my, God. my off-road question is uh. this. What was the road less taken that you might have taken, but you didn't, and so you ended up <laughs> yeah. oh, <laughs> as man. president of Buffalo Toronto Public Media? I mean, was there some other interest that yeah. you might have gone down that road? I minored in political science at Buff State. I don't think I would have got into politics at all. I, I kind of look at it like a fan, like I kind of like watching it, not necessarily participating in it. I think I've had a dream moment. I loved playing soccer, and when I was in junior high, I got elevated to the high school team, and but I gave it up for radio. And I think, oh. not saying I would have played the MLS, but I would have enjoyed maybe playing soccer in college uh, would have been fun. So yeah. soccer in college or politics behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, yeah, behind the, the mover scenes. Mover and shaker, the guy who's behind the face out front. Yeah, I and uh, you know, it's... It, Tom it, Calderon, the encourager of collaboration. There you go, yeah. The collaborator and the encourager of same. But I'll tell you something, if I went down the politics route, I probably would have been out of it by now because of the way it turned uh, out to be, you know? I mean, I think, you know, without getting into it, and I don't want to, you know, no, uh, but you watch Pal's funeral and you see the smooth transition and the way the respect people had for the quote-unquote other side mm-hmm. was sadly an art form that is uh, no longer. It is lost. Um, and so it is lost. And... It is, yeah. So I think, yeah, thank God uh, this all worked out because uh, I'd be very confused right now. Very confused. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This This was so much fun. And and seriously, I, 
the space here is is just awe-inspiring and and look at the type of culture that this organization brings to the city and to the region and i just applaud this organization because you need that in a city, and and I wouldn't say that everything has to be you know at the the level of perfection, but you know workshopping things and learning from that yep. I just think is so great. I always look at it as you know you're thrown together with this new family, right? And you've been given a problem. Yep. And you spend four weeks problem solving, everybody helping everybody else, and that's why it's it's so important even in a production getting to know everybody from an editor to a lighting director to a camera person to what have you, you just get that different perspective and then all of that cobbles together to make you a success. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you think about all the great work that's done here and you think about that spark of an idea that probably came from a non-traditional collaborator Mm -hmm. and those are sometimes the the best moments. (laughs) Again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, yes, it might be a cup of cheer. And no, no, it's none of your business what's in my cup of cheer. So how about that Tom Calderon, huh? What a great time we had. He came to the theater. We sat down backstage. We were both masked, of course. But uh, after a while, we uh, sat far apart from each other and took the masks off and and enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Great guy. Hope to hear more from him. And uh, I will continue to be a PBS subscriber, WNED, WBFO, all of those. And uh, I will continue to use Passport, which is our version of Netflix. You heard him say it. And I hope that you are also a supporter of our uh, Buffalo, Toronto public media. Thank you, Tom Calderon. And now it's the time in the show where, instead of talking about who's coming up next, I simply say... I hope you all have a safe and healthy and happy holiday season. We really, we really need to be with family, but we also need to be careful. We need to be extremely careful because, as you know, <laughs> the numbers are up and it's not good. But we will be careful and we will enjoy our families. So from my home to yours, from my family to yours, I hope you have a wonderful, happy holiday season. From RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano.